and open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 40. So thank you so much for uh, uh, joining us today. I had several of you as I worked my way around the room congratulating me, which I appreciate, and uh, surprised that I was here today, but where else would I be, right? So we're here, and uh, we were married Friday afternoon uh, up on the roof at the Valley Hill. It was a great time. So just six of us there, just the girls and the boys and myself. Tyler did the ceremony, and uh, it, turned out, it turned out awesome. It was great. Uh, Low-key might be the, the world's fastest ceremony. One of the big things, though, was to mention that though it's uh, casual and brief, it, it is significant that we kept the key part. We got rid of all the flowers and stuff and kind of kept the part that, no offense to you, really matters. So that's what we, that's what we did. So great time. Thank you for that. And uh, we appreciate it. Uh, what am I looking at? Genesis chapter 40 and 41. So Genesis chapter 40, Genesis chapter 41. If you don't have Bibles, raise your hands, and the guys will bring you a copy. I, if I remember correctly, it's like page 40, or I'm sorry, page 20, I believe, doing that from memory. Uh, we said last week we started a, a new a series called Faithful, and we'll look four weeks at the book of Genesis and, and four weeks at uh, the first six chapters of Daniel. And, and I said, especially in the, in the Joseph part, he's really the central figure of Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50, uh, that I said we could do any of these weeks and kind of do it to be continued, uh, though each one of the lessons are standalone. So if you know, you're here today and then you're heading back to Bemidji, Minnesota or something and we're never going to see you again, but, but if you're here and though you don't have last week or next week, these are still hopefully benef beneficial lessons. But I, I want to do a little bit of a review just to make sure we're all kind of on the same page. So if, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 37, we looked at three chapters last week, Genesis 37, 38, 39. And we took out Genesis 38 and said, that's like a parenthetical insert that's kind of dropped in here. Uh, it deals with Judah. It's a great story. Uh, it shows sin, depravity, and then redemption. So we said uh, next week and then the following week, we're going to come back and really look in depth at Genesis chapter 38. But our focus, the majority of the time, was on 37 and 39. And even throughout the balance of the story, kind of the central figure in all of this is Joseph. Now, I, I teach something through the week called priority living. I rarely talk about it uh, in here, but priority living is a study I do. So I do one of them here on Wednesday morning at 7, and then one uh, Thursday morning up at Valley View Bible Church. Valley View is uh, the church on the north side of Lincoln, up on the hill between Tatum and 32nd Street, and then at noon at North Phoenix Baptist Church. been doing this for 21 years, roughly. Actually, three more because I did them with Larry, so almost 24, almost 25 years. And so there's a curriculum that I use, and about every five years, I'll teach a series, repeat it. And there's a series that I do that's titled Survival Through the Cycles of Life, and it's a study on the life of Joseph. And it's a perfect example of what we saw last week. There's this roller coaster ride that we see in, in Joseph's life. So important and easy to then relate or apply to our life because we look at it and we understand that circumstances like, right? Circumstances like rarely go like this. It's more like a volatile stock that's up and down and up and down. Sometimes, sometimes sharp up and down, sometimes not as much. Strong up and downs in Joseph's life. 
I mean, it really is from, from this, the favored son to slavery and then up and then down. And today we see Joseph with a huge role reversal in his life. One of my favorite series that, that I've taught is on, the, on uh, the book of Jonah. Love that. And in Jonah's life, you see much of the same thing. You see a time when God uses a great storm. Uh, you see him use the casting of lots. Uh, you see a time with the great fish. That's what we really relate with when we talk about Jonah. In that last chapter, in the last few verses, God uses a, a quick-growing vine, a small worm, and a scorching wind, all to orchestrate events so that he might achieve his purpose. And the same thing is true in the life of Joseph. The difference is Jonah was disobedient and resisting God. We get none of that from Joseph. All we get from Joseph is that he's compliant with God's will, that he understands what God is doing. We don't get any sense, either explicit or implicit, that he was whining or complaining. And yet we see him uh, go from working in a dungeon to becoming the prime minister, if you will, of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the, in the world, that arguably here pretty soon, maybe the most powerful man, for sure, other than Pharaoh in the whole world. So let me just take you through this really quickly so we're on the same page. In Genesis chapter 3, verse, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, we see that Israel, that's another name for Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons. And, and that sets up this, this tension that's there. Uh, the boys hated Joseph, and then they hate him all the more, and then they hate him all the more. Joseph has a, a dream, actually two of them, that you see in verse 5 and verse 9. The dreams are essentially the same. The interpretation is, as Joseph shares it with his brothers and then his parents, is that you will one day bow down to me. At that point, the boys hate him all the more. There's a moment where Jacob sends Joseph out on a reconnaissance mission. Uh, the boys are out taking care of the flock. They've moved all the way to Dothan. They see Joseph coming. They decide to kill him, but then they reconsider and say, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's sell him into slavery. So that's what happens in verse 28, still in Genesis chapter 37. A couple of transactions, and by the end of Genesis 37, what we see is that Joseph is now sold to Potiphar. This is a key move that God orchestrates. Joseph is sold to Potiphar, who is the captain of the bodyguard, so like the head of the Secret Service, better job than it is now probably, but head of the Secret Service in Egypt. Then there's the parentheses in chapter 38, Chapter 39, we pick up the story again. We see Joseph, and we made this huge point. In your Bible, it should be circled, underlined, starred, marked, somehow. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and how he caused all to prosper in his hand. We see that throughout this. We could easily go, oh my gosh, look at Joseph. Now he's in slavery. Where's God in all this? God must be gone. Has God abandoned him? Has he done something wrong? No. God is right there. God is with him. God is orchestrating this. God is blessing him. He's succeeding. So we said there must be something in God's definition of success that's different than ours because we rarely say, look at that successful slave. 
Okay, we don't think of things or tend to think of things in those ways. Joseph then is now elevated, so verse 4, he's the overseer of all the Potiphar has. He's the CEO or COO of Potiphar Enterprises. Uh, Lady Potiphar uh, comes along and tempts him. Uh, he refuses, and, and a great verse that, that we should go to and cling to and understand again and again, because Joseph gives us an insight of how could I do this. He said, there's nobody greater in Potiphar's house. He's withhold nothing from me except you. You're his wife. Here's the key, the end of verse 9. Should be circled again. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's what happens in this process. Joseph said, it's not just that, I, it's not just that I'm betraying Potiphar, but how could I do this against God? Uh, Lady Potiphar comes back again and again, day after day, it says, in, in verse 10. And finally, one day, she tries to seduce Joseph. He runs away. She grabs at his cloak. He runs out. She retains the cloak. And then when Potiphar comes back, she says, look at this. This slave that you brought in here, this guy that you brought into our house, he tried to rape me, in essence. Verse 19 is where we last saw Potiphar. So now when the master heard these words, that's Potiphar, the words of his wife, uh, that, that your slave had done this, he burned with anger. So verse 20, this is where we left off, Potiphar took Joseph and put him into jail. That is the place where the king's prisoners are confined. And there he was in jail. But at this dark moment, we hear exactly what we heard at the beginning of chapter 39. The Lord is with Joseph. It extends kindness to him, gives him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So let's make sure we understand now. Joseph is under the authority of Potiphar. He now is put into the jail. Now this is the dungeon. This is where the king's prisoners go, high security. He's under the authority now of the chief jailer. He receives favorable uh, treatment from him. So much so that the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge, verse 22, all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because, here we go, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. Now, we talk about all sorts of practical application of that. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go online and just listen to it. And, and, and really, the theology of suffering and pain, the reality of God is who he is. And in the midst of that, that's where we find comfort. So every one of us, and we're going to hit these same points honestly again today. Every one of us at some point in our life uh, experienced this, this sense of, of, of perhaps a, a sense of separation from God. A sense of, God, where are you? What are you doing? That may be you right now. There is not a Sunday goes by, and I'm really conscious of that, that there aren't some of you who are here who are barely hanging on. Or some of you who have been hanging on a long time. And it's been day after day and year after year, and, and, and there's this duality. There's the human side of it, which we absolutely get and understand, is that you're saying, God, where are you? But there's the side, the theological side, and that's why we talk so much about theology. Never just an academic study. I, I've been to, and I, this sounds like a criticism. I guess it is. I've been to churches where the guy just gets up and does this theological dump. And we all walk away and didn't we learn a lot? Well, there's never a connect to application. And I haven't really learned until I've taken it from the classroom to the laboratory. 
So I come back to these truths over and over and over and over again. So I'm taking these all the time. I'm taking, especially in instances like this, because your feelings are going to run all over the place. So we, we never, I, I cannot imagine there's a month go by that we don't go back and we remind you that what you know trumps what you feel. That there'll be moments where I feel abandoned, but I know God has left me. And Joseph just seems to somehow, he gets this. In fact, so much so that at the end of this book, we'll look at it the last week of the series, he, he says to the brothers when they come and they're, they're wondering, they're wondering about all that's going on, he says, listen, you did all this, you meant it for evil, but, but God meant it for good. God essentially is, is able to trump and, and, and override. Now, now, again, what we're talking about here is faith. One of the authors writes this, and I don't know how tough this is. That is why Christians should not fret at the loss of a job or a flat tire. Those seem to be two very different things, by the way. <laughs> a bout of unexpected sickness or whatever. God is God, and we know that in all things, God works things together for good. You know what? I got that. But to just say, don't fret. What, what, the way I like to try to say that is, is you walk in tomorrow, and they say, listen, well, you want to tomorrow you get the day off. You walk in the day after tomorrow. And they say, we're downsizing, we're starting with you, might only be a one-person downsize. Okay? As you process that, there is that fear, there's that intimidation, there's that uncertainty and what's going to happen. I don't want to minimize that. What I want to say is, when we get our breath, we understand that God says, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you. It may not be everything you think you need. I, I guarantee you, humanly, Joseph has got to have these moments where he's going, really, God, this is what's going on? We're told that when he was sold into slavery and put into that pit, that he went yelling and screaming. Even today, we're going to see something very, very human about Joseph. He's not a robot. Don't we take our breath? We go, you know what? What I know trumps what I feel. I know that I may feel abandoned, but I also know that it will never leave me or forsake me. You, you may be in here this morning going, I don't know if God can ever forgive me, yet the Bible says he does. It's not an excuse, by the way, for license. It's just a sense of understanding God and who he is, his deep love. So that's where we are when we pick up the story in chapter 40. Big section today, chapter 40, which is 23 verses, chapter 41, which is 57 verses. So what is that? That's 60, 80 verses. So what we're going to do is, is try to pull these out. I understand some of you know this stuff very well. Some of you, this is new. So I'm going to try to spend enough time in the text to read it to you, to make sure we get it. And then what I want to pull out today is really practical application as we understand the theology of all of this. So here's what happened. It came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, so he put him in the confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Now let's stop. Who's the captain of the bodyguard? Wow, that's pathetic. Okay, let's try this one more time. Okay. Who's the captain of the, of the bodyguard? Potiphar. Sure, Potiphar. I know those moments. I wouldn't say, just so you know, I wouldn't say it out loud either if I was here. Okay. Now, the last time we saw Potiphar, chapter 39, 
verse 19, he's angry, and he's taken Joseph, and he's placed Joseph in prison. So here's the, the cupbearer and the baker, their key staff in Pharaoh's administration. The baker's self-explanatory. The cupbearer, and both of these were, but especially the cupbearer, more than just a servant. Uh, he would be, and it wouldn't just necessarily be one, he's the chief of them. The, the cupbearer is one who would be on, on almost a constant basis with Pharaoh. Oftentimes, they would develop some level of, of a relationship, maybe a confidant. Uh, he had a variety of tasks. He's a, a butler, kind of a chief administrator. He also became, because if they were going to kill uh, Pharaoh, easier than a war, they'd just kind of put something in his food or his drink so the cupbearer would taste it and everybody would watch. If he didn't die, then they went ahead and ate. You know, it's, not, it's a, hard to get life insurance in that. You're better off skydiving, okay, if you're going to get life insurance than this. So whatever they did, we don't know what it was. Pharaoh's angry. So he has these high-profile prisoners. He takes them, and he gives them to Potiphar. Now, understand this. Potiphar understands that these guys are under the microscope, and how he handles them will be placed under the microscope. These are political hot potatoes. Potiphar doesn't want this messed up. Verse 4, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they're in the confinement for some time. Potiphar looks around and says, okay, I can't afford to have this mishandled. Who do I know that I can trust? Now, I go back to what I talked about last week. I'm really confident that Potiphar understood that his wife was lying. If he actually thought Joseph was trying to force himself on her, he would have killed Joseph. And this even tells me more. He said, I can't afford, who do I know that I can trust? We see this over again. This is the second time we see it with Potiphar. We saw it with the chief jailer. We're going to see it today with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to say, I need a discerning man. Where can I go? And they all turn to Joseph. He looks around and he said, I can't afford to have this messed up. So what do I do? I'm going to give it to Joseph. Verse 5, the cupbearer and the baker, the king of Egypt, are confined. The same night, they each have a dream. They each have their own interpretation. Verse 6 and 7. So what I want to do, not just give you what it says, but let's apply it. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he observed them, and behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials, okay, the cupbearer and the baker, who were with him in confinement, why are your faces so sad? Let's stop. That's a great picture in our life. God has sovereignly placed you in his family. If you're, if you're saved, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a sovereign, sovereign act of God. But God's sovereignty doesn't end with salvation. God sovereignly, <laughs> here you go, God sovereignly gave you the family he's given you. Those kind of weird, quirky people who, by the way, are sitting somewhere else going, thinking of you, that weird, quirky person. So it works both ways, Okay. God sovereignly placed you in the neighborhood he's placed you. He sovereignly placed you in the job he's placed you. My contention would be, you don't have to pray, God, bring people that are hurting into my life. Bring them around so I can minister to them. He's already put them there. All you have to do is pray, God, open my eyes to see them. Then 
verse 7, have the courage to get involved in their lives. I, I used to think a lot about why people have friends or don't have friends. And I used to think that in some ways it was scary to reach out and, and experience rejection. What I think I've resolved is, yeah, that's true, but sometimes we're afraid we're going to be accepted. And then comes the call at 12 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning. Or here's what always happens to me, just as they're kicking off, right at that most inappropriate time. And I would venture some of the most significant moments in your life never appear on the, on the schedule on the iPhone or the BlackBerry or, or if you're still doing a daytime or whatever. Those moments, those divine times that God just drops into your life. I guarantee you they'll be there this week. They're all around you. Now, you have to be sensitive enough to see them and then courageous enough to act. I was talking to a lady that teaches seventh grade, and she was talking about just one day being in. It was just a normal day, and school is whatever, except her best student was just acting up the whole morning. The, the entire morning, this kid who's never been a problem in seven years of school is just kind of sort of out of control. So rather than battle at lunch, what the teacher said is, why don't you stay in here with me? And said, listen, sweetie, I've never seen this before. What's going on? And she said, well, it's been building, but last night my parents told me they're going to get a divorce, and I don't know how to handle it. I had a young man, 12 years old, come up to me one day, and he said, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And he said, I need your help. And I said, what is it? And he said, my mom and dad are fighting. They've split up, and I've got to decide, am I supposed to live with my mom or live with my dad? And there's what he said, I'm too young to be making decisions like this. And there's people like that all around you, all day long who when you look at them, you can see this, and if you just have the courage in your own way to say, why are you so sad? What's going on? Now, why wouldn't we do that? My contention is most of the time we wouldn't do that because reaching out could be painful because they're going to tell you what's wrong. Now you're involved. I got it. I experience that all the time, trying to make that call. What do you do? Well, they tell them, we had these dreams. We have these dreams, we don't have anybody to interpret it. And Joseph, in an amazing act of humility, verse 8 says, interpretations belong to God. Uh, uh, Joseph understands what's about to happen. They're going to tell him the dream. He's going to give them the interpretation. But he said, I don't want you for a second to go, man, is that Joseph something? Because whatever I have, whatever gift it is, whatever, it's from God. Talent on loan from God. Russ says it all the time. I'm not sure he understands the implication of it, but it's exactly true. Any skill you have, any ability you have, good looks. I look at, like, I always talk about this, but that Prince William dude, this guy did not, he hasn't done anything that I'm aware of. Nothing. I mean, he ate and he kept breathing. And they, like, call him, like, your majesty. And this guy's done nothing for him. If, if this guy, and I don't know, he seems like a charming guy, okay? But, but, but if he has the slight, that's a perfect example, but if he has the slightest bit of arrogance about him or pride, I wouldn't know what it would be because all you did was get born into this family. But it's the same thing with you and me. If there's anything going on in our life, you can't take any credit for it. Here's what I try to tell people when you look at me. All the bad thing is me, all the good stuff is God. Joseph said, listen, I'll interpret this, but don't get carried away here. This isn't me, this is God. So the cupbearer 
the cupbearer told Joseph his dream. And here's what he said. In, the, in my dream, verse 9, behold, there's a vine in front of me, and on the vine there are three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms were coming out, and clusters produced ripe grapes. And now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said, easy. This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days, and within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put uh, Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. He said, here's the good news. Three days from now, you're going right back to the position you were in. Looks bad now, but here's what's going to happen. And D, by the way, just so you know, that's what comes to pass. Well, verse 16 the baker hears this. He's excited about this. He said, man, this is good. I saw that he had interpreted favorably. So he said, that sounds good. He said, I'll have one of those. And he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dreams, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top of the basket, there were some of all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And Joseph said, here's the answer. This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, this isn't good, and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh off of you. Now, it doesn't say here, but I think that's when the baker said to the cupbearer, I'll trade your dreams. I don't know that, but he didn't get, he didn't get what he wanted. He thought, boy, this is going to be great. So, verse 20, thus came about on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, one's lifted up, one's lifted off. I, I want to go really practical here. Look at the courage it took for Joseph to tell the baker the truth. That's one of the really difficult things that, that we have all around us, it seems like, all the time. And it seems like in Christian circles, and I just... It seems like in Christian circles, it's even more difficult. We see it easy, even as a staff sometimes. As we start to deal, because I, obviously we're a church, I got it, but we still have components where we're dealing with people, and one of the things we strive for, we don't always get there, but one of the things we strive for and, and achieve often is a level of candor and honesty where we're able and willing to tell somebody, hey, you know what, you're not near exactly what you think you are. Well, I hear it often in teaching, not so much staff guys, but I've had on many occasions where somebody will say, you know, I, I want to be a teacher. I watch you do it. Clearly, it can't be that hard. And, and so we'll give, them a we'll give them a class. This happens all the time. We'll give them a class of 20, and after two weeks, they got it to a class of five. Okay? And, and, we, and my conclusion is, and I don't mean this harshly, but you don't have the gift of teaching. You have the gift of disbursement, apparently. Okay? <laughs> Now, almost always, here's what I'll get back. If I had more opportunity to teach, I'd get better. And we go, no. <laughs> You're just not very good. And that, I, to me, that's the most loving, honest thing to do. Now, here's what you do well. You, you do this over here really well. But, but you don't do that well. And I'll tell you how practical this is. Jack Welsh, when he left GE, started dealing with a whole bunch of other companies on kind of a consulting basis. And he said the one consistent thing he was shocked about is the lack of candor within an organization. 
that rather than say the, the tough thing in a constructive way, they'd rather promote you. They'd rather do anything than just deal with it. But if you really love somebody and you really care for somebody, you're going to have to tell them the truth. And oftentimes when you get in these relationships, when you're there to help, you're going to be God's agent. And that means in a loving, kind, gentle way, as gentle as you can be, you're not going to be able to say everything's going to be all right. That's why I, I, I always feel like I'm not very good at, at the hospital or when somebody's really sick. I, I watch so many people say everything's going to be okay. Well, I don't, number one, I don't know that I can say that. Number two, I just read the report, you're going to die. Now, it's going to be okay if you're a Christian because you're going to heaven, but I'm not sure that's what you're looking for at this moment from me. It's not going to be okay. I was doing a men's retreat, and they come at an opportune time. So I'm doing a men's retreat. And it has kind of the, the standard men's conference schedule. Friday night session, Saturday morning, Saturday morning, then a free time, then Saturday night, maybe one or two, then Sunday morning. They're, they, they're very difficult. This was out of town. It was a four-hour plane ride. I don't like the traveling. I know. I, all this, it was new stuff. Very, very tired. In the, in the sessions in the morning, and I don't sleep well, you're in a camp, you know, I just don't like it. So it... it it's between the two sessions on Saturday morning. A guy comes up to me, looks to be about my age, and, and uh, he just looks broken. So he said, can I meet with you this afternoon? And I said, you know, I, I'm getting my nails done or something. something <laughs> something's going on. I said, tell me what it is. And he said, I've been married 30 years. My wife's going to leave me. I said, all right, meet me at my room, blah, blah, blah. So he comes in, and he starts this story. And he's, hurt, he's hurting. And I am uh, safe. I'm from out of town. So he just throws up all over me. And he starts this story. We raised these kids and, and all sorts of stuff. And, then, and he, my wife went back to school. I said, really? Let me guess. Psychology major? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Lawyer. Got all this stuff going on. And he said, she's going to leave me. And I'm just fighting and fighting and fighting. Give me hope. And I... <laughs> And I said, well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not good at that. Um, I said, here's what I can tell you. It takes two people to get into a marriage, but it only takes one to get out. And your screaming, I won't give up, is not going to drown out her whispering, I want out. He said, well, tell me what you think. I said, I, I don't, I doubt you have a chance in this. Well, what am I supposed to do? I said, all you can do is be the husband God called you to be to love her, to nurture her, to care for her, in spite of it. Don't wait. Don't. How long should I do it? <laughs> till, till you get the papers and they're signed and you're out of it. See, it, it's a matter of being courageous and it's a matter of telling the truth. Now, I want to go back and I want to pick up verse 14 and 15 and connect them with verse 23. In the life of the cupbearer, Joseph tells him you're going to be restored. Joseph says in verse uh, 14, keep me in mind when all goes well with you and please do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house, get me out of this thing. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing that I should be put into this dungeon. Look at the humanity there. That's what I'm saying. He's not a robot. 
He's saying, listen, from the very beginning, we think there's a process here, and it is 13 or 14 years. There are 13 or 14 years here, and he's not playing the victim card. He's just saying, this is what happened to me over and over and over again. And if you're in the presence of Pharaoh, and you think this has a, a favorable sense to it, will you mention him to me? Will you mention me to him? Will you mention him and let him know how this is going on? Let him know what's happening. I want out of here. Don't sterilize and go, oh, I'm God's man. I'm just doing God's thing. I got it. But God, here's the deal. I want out. I can remember Larry in the midst of all of his sickness saying, I don't want this cancer and I don't want this arthritis. I'd never want it again, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. God's doing something. Same thing with Susan. When Susan got her cancer, it was the same thing. We had lots of conversations to sort it out. And from the very beginning, he said, it's treatable, but it's not curable. And, and, and we said, God either caused this or allowed it for a reason. So we would over and over say, you know, I want out of this unless you want me in it. Now, there's some heavy theology in the midst of all of that because what we're saying, God's in control. But because God's in control doesn't, to me, doesn't mean you abandon any effort on your part. A lot of, lot of commentaries are critical of Joseph for just saying, I want out of this. I don't see that at all. It makes total sense to me that he would say, listen, I don't know how, I don't know how God's going to get me out of here. But as long as I'm not lying and stealing and cheating and sinning, as long as I'm obedient, as long as my attitude is right, to express to the cupbearer who may have an opportunity to appeal to Pharaoh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Will you remember me? Verse 23 has got to be about as sad as it gets. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. I'm going to guess when, he, when he, he said, yeah, Joseph, you're my man. I'll get you out of here. And so every day Joseph's cleaning the cell and he's whistling, leaving on a jet plane and he's, he's doing all the things that are going with it. And every time there's a knock at the door, he's saying, this is it. They must be going to let me out. But now after time, after time, after time, how long? Chapter 41, verse 1, at the end of two full years. How long are you going to be in your version I don't want to spiritualize all of life, but how long you'll be in this prison you're in? Two years, maybe later. Why would I be here? Don't know. My good, God's glory, God's doing something. I don't have, I, I, I just don't have the ability in my, in my gene pool, I guess, to say to you everything's going to be okay. Now, it'll ultimately be okay, but that doesn't mean that circumstances are going to change the way you want them to change or when you want them to change. Two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. Verse 2, let's go through the dream. Lo, from the Nile there came seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And then, behold, seven other cows came out from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek cows. Pharaoh woke up. Verse 5, he fell asleep, and then essentially the same thing. There's a seven ears that come up on one stalk, and then, and then seven thin ones that are scorched, by the wind sprout up, verse 7, then the thin ears swallow up the plump ears, and then Pharaoh woke up, said it's a dream. He did what they would do in those days. He went to his best and his brightest. He went to the, to the cabinet, if you will, 
And he said, I, I had this dream, verse 8, but there were no interpretation of it. He went to the wise men, the magicians, his advisors, his spiritual consultants. We don't know. Then the chief cupbearer spoke up. Now, remember that? This is the one to whom Joseph said, hey, when you get a chance, will you remember me? Can you talk to me? Talk about me to Pharaoh? And, and the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh. And then he said, I, I would make mention today of my own offenses. He's going to take Pharaoh down this morning. Remember, remember when you were mad at me, verse 10, and you put me in confinement in the house of Potiphar, both me and then the, the baker? Verse 11, we had a dream on the same one, he and I. Each of us had a dream according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was, verse 12, a Hebrew youth. I don't even remember the guy's name. I just remember this guy. I don't remember his name. I remember what he did for me. He interpreted the dream. He related to the dream. And to each one, the interpretation was according to his own dream. He said he did this, and verse 13, it happened exactly like he said. Pharaoh, do you remember? You restored me. And you hang the baker. I remember him. You ought to try him. Verse 14. Now, after two full years, all this anticipation, all of a sudden, the word comes. Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon when, or after, after he'd shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. That could be a throwaway, but I'm going to spend a little, a little bit above, about this. Is it a hygiene issue? Uh, I'm not totally sure on that one. The Hebrews were a rugged shepherd monotheist, and the Egyptians were sophisticated polytheists, cattlemen. Joseph is about to have, among other things, a cross-cultural experience here. He understands that he's going into the court of Pharaoh, and I would suggest to you, he understands that there's an appropriate way to enter that court. Now, let me put it into our life. Jesus, the night before he died, prayed, Father, as you send me into the world, I'm sending them and them and them and us into the world. So, so God saved us, and he saved us for a reason, and we're salt and light in the midst of all of this, and we are to be his guy and his gal doing his work here. And we're going to encounter all sorts of people, and the, this is important now, and the burden on us is to enter their world on their terms without compromise. God saved me in 1980, and all of a sudden I'm exposed to this whole vocabulary, this whole, this whole Christian thing. And, and there were all sorts of terms. And everybody talked, it was like talking to two guys from Intel. They were talking to each other in some language that nobody knew what the heck it was. They're just going back and forth and forth. And they never took the time. And they had justification, sanctification, and all, the, all, all of these words I never heard of. And they seemed oblivious to the fact that I didn't have any understanding of it. And, and they made very little attempt, honestly, to try to enter into my world and connect these things. There's a great scene in Acts chapter 17. Now, what Paul's done is as Paul travels around to establish churches, he'd come into a town. He would go to the synagogue. He, he would get together the Jews that were there, and he would preach to them. And most often, he would preach to them from the Old Testament. He'd go, look at Isaiah 53. Look at this picture of the Messiah. That Messiah, that's the Jesus. You've heard about him, right? Yep, we heard about him. That's the Jesus that died and rose from again. That's the one that's your Savior. That's the connect. When he comes into Athens, Paul doesn't come in and go, let me tell you about Isaiah 53. Because they would go, I, I, I don't know Isaiah 53. 
Remember the story. It's classic. He walks into Athens. He spends the afternoon walking around the town, and he's just like kind of looking around, and he's understanding, and all of a sudden he sees things, and then he has this opportunity to speak to the elite intellectuals of the city of Athens, and he said, you know what? I was hanging out today, and here's what I saw. You're very, very religious, spiritual people. I saw statues everywhere. Some scholars estimate there were as many as 30,000 statues in Athens. There's all different gods. Yeah, the gods of drought, the gods of famine, the gods of the wind. We've got to get these gods ready. We're about 95 days away from college football. The Hawkeye God, he's been taking a few years off. We've got to get these gods ready. So Paul says, here's what's interesting. I saw a statue. It was really a cool statue. It was a statue to an unknown god. So you got all these other statues, but then to kind of cover your bases, there's a statue of the unknown God. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk to you about that that you already worship. I want to talk to you about that unknown God. And then he quotes from their poets and their songwriters in the day. That's you and me. It's to connect with the world around us. It's to understand the world you live in and the people around and what they're doing and and be able to connect things. And and I think, this is me, I think Paul, I'm sorry, I think Joseph is about to experience a huge cross-cultural experience. Let me just check time. Let's do this for a second. I've discovered that the closer oftentimes, the, the more biblical literate people become, the more dogmatic and fundamental they become, the more they become afraid of the culture rather than to actively engage the culture. So, so we'll have, we used to have as a, one of our values to be relevant. And, and so I would encounter this all the time. Virtually every Connect class, there'd be somebody in there, usually somebody was coming from another church, a good church, a serious church, and, and, I, and they would say, I see here you have a value of relevance. Can you talk to me about that? And I would say, well, I, I'm not sure. What, what do you mean? Well, is that what you try to be, is relevant? And I said, well, we had a long meeting, and we decided the option was irrelevant, and we didn't think that would look good on a coffee mug, come to the church that's irrelevant. We, we thought that's a little bit, I wouldn't want to go to that. But here's what they were saying. So we'd have to, let me tell you what you're saying. That's what I'd say. Let me tell you what you're asking. Let me tell you your fear. Your fear is, in a quest to be relevant, we lose all the things that are distinctive. We don't talk about sin or hell or wrath or judgment or any of the tough stuff anymore. When we come to life, we're going to teach husband and wife relationship. No, 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 no. We're going to teach, and this is just simple, this is common sense. We're going to teach doctrinal truth in the way that's easiest for a person to understand it without altering that truth. So, so when I'm teaching a group of businessmen and women, I use a whole set of, 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 of not just examples and illustrations, but really even, even, a, even a vocabulary that's different than I will at summer camp. We don't go in with the, with the five-year-olds and say, okay, let me, let me explain. I'm going to play the Trinity. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. No, we understand your capacity or your ability. So I, is, that, is that all that's going on there? I think that's part of this. It's hygiene. It's, it's reverence. He knows he's going in. Verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream and nobody can interpret it. And I've heard about you that when you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. We're going to see the same thing when we get to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. These are great moments of humility. Pharaoh has said to Joseph, I've heard you're the guy who can interpret dreams. And Joseph says in verse 16, God does that. 
He doesn't even just deal with it silently because he could have just left it like that. There could have been the boastful thing that says, you're lucky, Pharaoh. Here I am. I got it. I can interpret it. Give it to me. I'll get it. I know you're right. I know what you've heard about. I'll do it again. Come on. Or he could have just left it silent, left it hanging there, but he didn't want anything to be shed on him in a favorable light and somehow distract from the one who really does interpret these, and that's God. God will do it. And Pharaoh kind of says in his own way, I don't really care. I had this dream, and here's this dream, and there's cows, and there's ears, and all the stuff we looked at. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. You had two different dreams, but God gave them to you, and he repeated them because this is going to come true. God has told Pharaoh what's about to happen. The seven good cows are seven good years. The seven good ears are seven good years. The seven bad cows are lean cows, and the seven bad ears, those are lean years. And, and so here's what's going to happen in Egypt, verse 29. There are going to be seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. The abundance is going to be great, but along is going to come the famine. It's going to be so severe that you'll forget those years of abundance. Verse 32, as I said, this is because he's repeated it, because it's going to happen for sure. Then Joseph says in verse 32, let me, let me kind of give you some, some practical advice here. Pharaoh should look for himself a man of discernment, a man who's wise that he can put over the land. And Pharaoh should take the action of appointing overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a, a fifth of the, of the produce of the land. You, you should begin to stockpile this, save this, gather in all the lands and let the food reserve become uh, after seven years, what we'll live on in the seven years of famine. In verse 37, uh, Pharaoh says, this seems like a really good idea. So he said to his guys, verse 38, we got a guy like this? And they said, no. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You'll shall be over my house. According to your command, all of my people shall do homage, and only in the, in, in the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph said to Pharaoh, see that I have set you over all the land and then Pharaoh took his signet ring and he gave it to Joseph. Here's, here's what he says. I'm going to take you, Joseph, and I'm going to make you the power of attorney. I'm going to give you unlimited American Express card. Uh, I'm going to give you the keys to the palace. Uh, I'm going to drive around in my chariot with you right behind me. And everybody in this land is going to pay homage to you. The only thing greater than you is me. And I'm going to yield to you on this stuff. And he tells them why. It's really interesting. It's verse 19. God did all this. You'll see this in the people around you all the time. People want the benefit of knowing Christ. But they don't want the responsibility of knowing him. They want the benefit of knowing God. But they don't want the responsibility of serving him. So that's what happens. Pharaoh then is, is driving around his chariot, and, and, and here's Joseph behind him. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout the land, and during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth an abundance. And this is exactly what you expect. They gathered this. And then there's famine that comes. Now we're going to meet again the 
sons of Joseph. We're going to be exposed to them and how God begins to bless them. But then famine comes into the land. The famine is spread all over, verse 56, the face of the earth. And Joseph opened the storehouse and sold to the Egyptians and the famine that was severe in the land. And the people and all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine is severe. And, and then when we get to chapter 42, it's going to say Joseph's brothers now come. Remember what we said last week, we could end all of these in this series with to be continued. So you get, you get the story here. Let me think about five minutes and give you kind of five I think four or five kind of practical points in your life. Number one, be on the alert for ministry opportunities all around you. It's back to chapter 40, verse 6 and 7. There are people all around you. Now, you need to be aware of it. I, I, I'm with a fellow, and he's explaining to me. He said, I'd like to talk to you perfect. And he said, I would like to be in the full-time ministry. Okay. Now, you will never hear me use that phrase except to say, we're all in the full-time ministry. I hate that. I hate it when some guy gets up here and talks about whatever this is and the laity. I, don't, I, I can't stand it. There's no distinction here. The roles are a little bit different. I get it. But we're all in full-time ministry. There's this elaborate theological explanation of missionaries and blah, blah, blah. Listen, we're all missionaries. We're all in mission. We're all in full-time ministry. Some is as a vocation. Some is a way of life. So I said to this guy, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm a lawyer. And I said, what kind of law do you practice? He said, family law. And I said, you want to get into full-time ministry? What could be full, more full-time ministry than deal with divorce and pain in the, all day long? Are you kidding me? You want to get out of that so you can do that? Really, honestly. That's what you want to do? Be alert of those ministry opportunities. They're all around you. And as I say, you got to see them and then respond. So here you go. What would Jesus do? I always hated that too. And maybe it's because I didn't think of it. But I always hated that. Jesus is walking along. Jesus is walking along and he sees a blind guy. What does Jesus do? And then he heals him. Okay, that's not an option. All you're going to do is get the guy greasy and dirty and dirty. Okay, the question isn't what Jesus do. What would Jesus have you do to the people all around you? Here's the second thing. Be patient. Wait for God's timing. I went into uh, AJ's the other day to get something to drink. Took a number, 74. Just then, the gal said, 63. I said, anybody want 74? I'm not going to be here. I'll be 74 by the time they get ready to make that drink. I'm not going to be here. I, I, just, I used to go to McDonald's, and I, I haven't been to McDonald's hardly at all, but I used to go to McDonald's all the time. My favorite thing to eat at McDonald's is a quarter pounder with cheese. I never go through the drive-in. That, that's like, that's torture, okay? So I would go in. Now, in those days, it's a little bit different now. They would be wrapped, color-coded. So there'd be a yellow that was a cheeseburger. There was a different yellow. You could see there was a double cheeseburger. Blue would be for fish, okay? So I would come in. My favorite thing to eat is a quarter pounder with cheese. What would I order? I would look at what was ready, and I would say, give me two of the blue." And they'd start to ring them up. I'd say, no, 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 don't ring them up because I've had this happen before. You ring them up, somebody else takes them, and then i got to wait for them. I'll have two of the blue. I don't even like your fish sandwich, but I'll have two of the blue. Why? Here's why I go to McDonald's. Let me say it the way I go. Fast food. I don't come in with candles and environment. I'm not looking for that. I want fast food. Here's the problem with us, me. 
We now come to God and we want a fast God. We want all these things that God's going to do, but we want them now. I want my thing, my way, my time now. When was Jesus born? At just the right time. Peter tells us that in the proper time, as we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. This is not about you and, and what you want. It's about God's timing. Here's the next thing. Be ready to be disappointed. Never seen this bumper sticker. Go ahead and use it. I love it. Expect bad things daily. Okay, welcome to my world. That's why it's a dark place in there. Expect bad, bad things daily. But it's like the cup there. People are going to disappoint you. Things aren't going to go the way you expect. We're getting ready for summer camp. Okay? Now, the first night there, it's kind of awkward. And then they kind of warm up to each other. And then by the end, I mean, it, it, it just is. You know, can we take our picture together? We're together. And they get a BFF, and they break the heart, and they give it to each other. Oh, this is so cool. And a week later, they don't even know each other. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, here you go. You've said these words. I, I said this Friday, and, and, it's, and it's never casual for me. For better, for worse, for richer, or poor, in sickness and health, until death do you part. And I thought, wow, that's a long time. And then you get to the point, you go, I didn't mean that sick. Better, yes. Worse? Uh-uh. You, you should be expect to be disappointed daily by people, by circumstances, by misplaced expectations all around you. Here you go. Focus on other people's needs. I watched Seinfeld the other night, and it's, it's, it's one of the ones where George is whining Elaine and, and Jerry are listening, and, and whatever his issue is, George is presenting his issue, Elaine and Jerry start talking, and, and they ignore George. And George goes, hey, 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 we're talking about me here. That's how I tend to be alive. Hey, 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 we're talking about me here. You talk about timing and needs. How about if the cupbearer, we don't know this, by the way, it's only speculation. How about if the cupbearer would have indeed gone right up to Pharaoh and say, there's this little Hebrew boy. And, and Pharaoh lets him out of there, and two years later, at just the right time, he's not there? Or how about Joseph? He said, I understand you interpret dreams. And Joseph goes, you know, I do interpret dreams, and here's what I'd like. I'm going to interpret this dream. Here's what I want you to do. I don't care how bold he is. Joseph would have never said, would you make me second in command in the whole land? He would have never thought of that. Focus on other people's needs. Here, here's the thing I've learned about suffering. Okay? It is suffering can easily become self-centered and self-focused, even, even unintentionally. So Susan was awesome at this. I would watch Susan. She'd be in the worst. You could just look at her. You could tell. She had 18 months where all she wore were, were, were flip-flops because she couldn't put shoes on. You could just tell by looking at her. And, and everybody that would come in contact with her would say to her, how do you feel? Well, if you start to answer that question, like, I will. Somebody said, how do you feel? Go, oh, my gosh, I don't know. Let me start down here. Right in here. Right back in here. I got a pain back here. Well, if everybody says to you, how do you feel, pretty soon all you're talking about is how you feel, and your mind is absorbed in your world. So if you're in the middle right now of hurt, pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, whatever it is, the fastest way to get out of it is to ignore. When somebody said to you, how you doing? You go, yeah, how are you? How are you doing? And, and, and no one, 
<laughs> that I know ever comes back a second time with it. Everybody's so self-absorbed that once you say to them, how are you doing, then they're going to talk about themselves. And once they do, you're out, you're out of your sphere. So here's what happened. People would come to Susan and say, how are you doing? And she would say, oh, you know, then, you know, some of the days are hard. How's your day? And the one, Susan, to whom the person was trying to extend grace and mercy, Susan, by the end of the conversation, is extending, extending grace and mercy and comfort to them. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll give, I think, yeah, that was it. Now I had one more. Yeah, one more. Be, be ready for the test of prosperity. What's amazing about Joseph is not only is he faithful in the difficult time, but he's faithful in the test of prosperity. Along as, as God blesses him, he doesn't become self-absorbed and self-centered. He understands that even those things are from God. He, he, does, he doesn't take credit or claim for them. Thomas Carlyle, a historian, says for every one person, or I think it was 100, every 100 people that pass the test of adversity, there's only one who can pass the test of prosperity. We see that all around us. We, we, we see that, honestly, as a nation even now. We, we came through some incredibly prosperous years. And you have people that made an extraordinary amount of money, and by that I don't mean millions of dollars. I meant way more money than, than they could have spent, and yet they spent it, and now they're in years of famine, and they got nothing left. They want you to bail them out. And, and I, I find myself not very sympathetic there. You, you save, and you plan, and you prepare for a rainy day. Here's what happens, and then one day it's going to rain. Don't, don't get carried away and self-centered and self-absorbed and get carried away with a sense of prosperity or health. God blesses you. Don't presume on that blessing. Well, if we had the screen right now, we'd go free frame, boom, to be continued. So guys are going to come now. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these awesome and amazing truths. You're an amazing God. And God, whether they are things that we would call good or things that we would call bad, they're from you either caused or allowed by you. God, thank you for them. Thank you, not just for the, the good and the blessings, but thank you for the suffering and the pain because you grow us in the midst of that. God, you do your work in our life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.